Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, an alternative to 12-step programs for people who want to free themselves from addiction and addiction-related issues in their lives. By the way, when I say addiction, I don't mean only drug and alcohol addiction, but also addiction to love, sex, gambling, pornography, technology, a whole range of other experiences. To learn more about the program or to check out free resources like articles, videos, blogs, and podcast episodes related to solving addiction-related problems, then visit our website at lifeprocessprogram.com or follow us on social media using any of the links in the show notes. We've created a new series of episodes titled LPP and Harm Reduction. This series contains four segments that you'll hear over the next four weeks. Today you'll hear part two called Harm Reduction versus Non-Abstinence. Last week I ended the episode just after asking Stanton a question and just before he offered his response. So to begin this episode, we'll begin right where we left off. Remember, if you have any comments or questions or suggestions about the podcast, you can reach us at info at lifeprocessprogram.com. Enjoy the show. This is as good of a time as any, I think, to ask you, what is it about you, if you can even be so reflective, that allowed you to both completely understand the destruction that this way of thinking caused, but also to be a vocal critic of this way of thinking, of this sort of status quo, take no risk, save no lives way of thinking. I mean, it put you, of course, fighting upstream against a, a dominant crowd. Well, that is a, what a great question. No wonder you're such a great coach, Zach. That's <laughs> sort of the theme of my book, a scientific life on the edge. It, there's two things. What I've endured from thinking this way, and how did I get to be that way? I mean, how was it that I was able to just think things through and then just present my ideas and then withstand all of the onslaughts that I experienced um, and just keep on going? I mean, one answer is that I did go to work for Lewis Harris and Matt. I had a set of skills and an entrepreneurial mind that enabled me to make money. And that's part of the journey second of the four parts of my memoir, I know how to make money so that I could never be completely eviscerated or undercut. Mm -hmm. I have different skill sets for making money. And the second thing was I had the support of my wife, Mary Arnold and my and Archie, but not many more people than that often. And the third thing about me is and it's slightly scary. If everybody in the world were against me, I could still maintain the truth. What is I'd that? Still be able to... That's like temperamental, or is I mean, what is that about you? Well, I mean, I, I actually spend a couple of chapters on it. Um, I just got Tom Horvath wrote a blurb for the book, and he said that it's a little embarrassing. He starts out, well, how did you know, Freud, Einstein, <laughs> Darwin developed an ability to just key into something and say, well, this is what it is. Uh, what's that about? And what do we learn from that? I mean, this is embarrassing, but Tom says it's not going to mean that you can do it if you read this book, 
But it's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a combination of things. Uh, my mother was important in that process. Um, I was quite gifted intellectually as a child. I just learned to do things and think through on my own. Both of my parents were free thinkers. And so um, I just learned to be able to tell the truth and to go ahead. And I, and I was in academic environments for quite a long time. I went straight through for my PhD. And you can sort of get away with things like this more somewhat in schools. I mean, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, University of Michigan. So people were suspicious of the way, the things I would say. But um, you could do it without being attacked. And then I discovered Norman Zinberg and Charles Winnick. And so I said, well, these are guys who actually studied people who use heroin. And they came to the same point of view as me, although neither of them came to it as thoroughly as me. That's ironic. Charles Winnick called, Charles Winnick discovered natural recovery from narcotic addiction was the dominant response. And yet he insisted on calling it a disease. And Norman Zinberg said, there's nothing different about taking heroin than anything else, which gets back to harm reduction. Um, there are habits that become overwhelming and are destructive, and heroin's one of them, but it's not unique. And how you think about it, and whether you think it's all or nothing, and whether you can cut back, that's just the way we think about heroin. But who made that up? But Norman refused to make the jump then, even though he had laid the framework for it from saying, well, if heroin's addictive, and possibly then any all overcoming uh, experience can be addictive, he would make fun of me for saying that. Right. Uh, at a lecture, Bruce Alexander had a conference at Simon Fraser University of Vancouver, and Zinberg took time to make fun of me, saying, just because I read the paper every morning doesn't mean that I'm addicted. So um, even uh, in, I have a section in my book called My Role Models Rejected Me. The guys I admired, I would have had a, a lower key personality than Zinberg. So he would say, oh, that's interesting, Stanton. But Zinberg would mock me. So anyhow, I don't know, I'm going a little far afield. The most famous psychologist in America was Richard Solomon. And he developed the opponent process model of addiction. He taught at Penn. And I got the alumni magazine. And the opponent process model said any strong impact on the brain has an, an aftershock that goes in the opposite direction. And to try and counteract that, you'll try and have more of the initial stimuli. And he said that's as true of love as it is of heroin. And I had just come back from South Africa and I had begun writing Love and Addiction. So I wrote him saying, well, I've been thinking about that. Here's an article I wrote in South Africa. And he invited me to his office at Penn. I, I was at Michigan, but I lived in, my parents lived in Philadelphia. And when I passed through, he had me come to his office and he spent 40 minutes trying to humiliate me by saying, I really didn't understand the brain work involved, even though I already was much more familiar with epidemiological and clinical literature on addiction. And so he had me in his office for about 45 minutes. He Xeroxed all of my book that I brought, the drafts. And um, for some reason, I reacted to that experience with amusement. I was 24. And he was already world famous. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. And I just thought, why would this man 
want to spend so much time <laughs> bullying me. So back to harm reduction, Ethan began a process where harm reduction became accepted, but it took forever. You know, hundreds of thousands of people died unnecessarily of AIDS. And one point of it was there was a gay revolution against AIDS among gay people, you know, Angels in America and ACT UP. But inner city African-Americans who were the main recipients and victims of the IV drug AIDS epidemic didn't tend to write uh, best-selling plays and form organizations around drug use. Right. That wasn't part of that cultural milieu. And so, I mean, the most shocking thing to say, but we're just realizing it now, the people who died as a result of the IV, HIV drug ep epidemic didn't count. I mean, Christine Whitman could kill, uh, David Trouss did an estimate. He estimated that 700 people a year would die without adopt in New Jersey without adopting IV uh, needle exchange. And Christine Whitman prevented I, uh, needle exchanges for 10 years. We can attribute 7,000 deaths to Christine Whitman's activities as governor. Nobody cared. The people who died in Newark and Camden, nobody knew about, they didn't count. So I, when I hear Black Lives Matter, I think about it in, in a different milieu than what most people think about. She could those lives could be dispensed with. Uh, they're not gonna make a best-selling movie about somebody having a heroin addiction in Baltimore or Appalachia. Those movies right. don't happen. So God bless, Ethan made that happen. And one way that he made that happen was African-American leaders were totally anti-drugs. And one of the big successes Ethan had was to say, how's that working for you? You're being anti-drugs. They just put black people in jail, eh? And they die. How's that good for your community right. to be totally anti-drug? And that happened. You know, that became an awareness among black political figures and then liberal political figures. You know, putting people in jail for drugs and not assisting them was an attack on the minority community. So Ethan made that all happen. So we're through three phases now. Phase one was the RAND reports, Pendery, Mary, while I'm at it, I guess I might as well tell the final tale of Mary Pendry. And I have to be careful the way I say this so nobody feels that I'm pleased about it. Mary Pendry left San Diego and went to a, uh, it was a VA hospital at Patton State, to one in uh, a northern state, northern Plain State. She had begun an affair, not with some, a subject in the, in the Sobel study, but with a patient at Patton State Hospital. He came to visit her. By the time he arrived, he was extremely intoxicated. He killed her and then committed suicide. Mm. And so we had phase one, the, the American fixation, absence fixation, the attack on the Sobel's and Ray report. We had the rise of harm reduction around needle exchange, which was, you know, fought off for 10 years by the likes of liberals like Christine Whitman and, you know, the uh, Clintons did nothing for it. 
then we had Ethan's success period after the 1990s, a kind of an awareness that drugs were part of a larger package. They were a part of people's lives. It wasn't like, well, people took heroin and died. Certain people in certain situations ended up worse with drugs than other people. Of course, that was obvious with marijuana. They, didn't, they weren't arresting kids at NYU for taking marijuana. Uh, you know, they were arresting people, you know, in the Bronx. That's just the way life right. works. Right. So Ethan had that success. And we're returning to your question, what's harm reduction? From where Ethan and people in drug policy stood, the problem was Americans only accepted abstinence. And that had to do with methadone as well. And needle exchange, obviously, you're still taking drugs if you're using a needle, but it's a clean needle. And so harm reduction came to mean non-abstinence outcomes or treatment. That's what it came to mean. So we're back to your initial question, what is harm reduction? Their answer is non-abstinence treatment. Our answer in the Life Process Program is focusing on a person's overall life and whether they're improving and how they're improving. Um, And that leads to a different place. And you and I, I think, are both, you know, I know we're aware of that outcome. I I just sent around, there's an article in today's time about how the pandemic is hurting people other than them getting coronavirus. The example in Time Magazine today in their mail out is a woman, they don't say what drug she was on. She was on a therapeutic drug which you and I would recognize as probably Suboxone, which is a drug people take instead of street narcotics. And around this whole Mishigasa, the pandemic, she couldn't get the drug. And she went out in the street and she got some uh, lethal mixture of drugs and died. That's a key story from where we come from. Our approach to harm reduction would be, how can you think about yourself and your life in a way that it gives you more control of your life so that you behave in a more constructive way and preserve your life? The non-abstinence answer is, oh, give them a substitute drug, Suboxone. That's harm reduction. So you see that distinction, right, Zach? You're tuned into that. Why don't you twirl that distinction around the block for a second? Well, I can try. I think you made the distinction perfectly well. I think the best I can do is reflect on what you've already laid out. In its infancy, there was this concept called harm reduction, which was really a common sense response to some of the worst destruction caused by drug use. It was providing the community with clean needles, a way for drug users to continue injecting drugs just as they always have but in a safer way so that their lives could be preserved and there was also a way for people to continue using drugs legally via replacement therapy starting with methadone and as time went on harm reduction came to mean non-abstinent addiction treatment the focus of course being on non-abstinence as opposed to general life enhancement which is what we're about the 
non-abstinent or anti-abstinence sort of realm is not how you and I and others that we know conceive of harm reduction because non-abstinence means that you as a clinician or a psychiatrist or a guild of addiction specialists could co-opt the term and say, well, we're giving you drugs and that's non-abstinence, so we're doing harm reduction. And maybe that turns out to be what we consider harm reduction in some cases, and in some cases maybe not. You and I see harm reduction as something different. Harm reduction to us means having the competence, but also the awareness and the flexibility and the compassion enough to say, look, whatever's going on in your life that seems to be working, you can keep it. Nobody wants to change you. And if there's a way that we can help you to live your life in a safer way or more productive way, we will try to help. And that's what the needle exchange was. Uh, basically saying to a whole community, oh, I see that a large number of you are injecting drugs. Fair enough. You're also transmitting bloodborne diseases. If you want, we can give you free and clean injection equipment. That way you don't have to change anything about what you're doing. And you can stay healthy. And the wonderful thing about that whole approach is that it's both life-saving, but it can also be a stepping stone. When people who are injecting drugs say, uh, you know, people who were willing to risk injecting them with used needles and dirty water, maybe people who don't have much hope left in their lives, when a person in that position finds a corner of the world where they're not only accepted for who they are, but they're encouraged and helped to take steps to take care of themselves... That not only keeps people alive physically, but it so often has this effect of enlivening them psychologically, spiritually. And that sense of meaning and purpose, even if it's just a sliver, can compound really quickly. And when open-minded and competent and aware people are prepared to respond to whatever a person's next-order needs are, in the way that people were prepared to offer clean needles to an entire community, then harm reduction becomes more than just being a caretaker. Not that it can't include being a caretaker, but it unlocks this new level, whereas level one is helping people reduce their worst harms in their lives. And then this next level, which it just uses the same formula of human interaction, is about helping people achieve more and greater purpose in their lives. And that can mean, in the case of um, uh, like a, the Portland Hotel Society in Vancouver, helping person find housing if they're homeless or helping people find meaningful work if they're unemployed, and guiding people on a trajectory of independence and, and life enhancement rather than only treating them as though they need a caretaker for the rest of their lives. Um, that was long-winded, but all of that is to say there is a non-abstinence approach to handling addiction, and the life process program approach can be in line with non-abstinence, but non-abstinence can sometimes lead to single solutions to an overall complex problem. And so if the only metric of harm reduction is non-abstinence, then it, it might have difficulty scaling. And our approach is broader. We don't care if a person is doing a drug or if they're not doing a drug, if they're having sex or not having sex or eating junk food or not eating food, uh, not eating junk food. What we care about is that we are available and competent to help people live their lives in a less chaotic way and that we can continue to be available to assist in whatever next steps a person wants to take in order to better their lives. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought that it would be 
a reasonable place to end it with a really coherent definition of what we mean when we say harm reduction. So over the next two weeks, you'll hear our final two episodes of this short series. We talk about tactical approaches to harm reduction, what it means in the real world, uh, giving specific examples, and we elaborate on the harm reduction principle, moving beyond only harm reduction with respect to drugs and alcohol, but other of life's involvements. We talk about how to do things like reopen the economy and live our lives in the midst of a pandemic where we need to stay safe, and how using a harm reduction way of thinking actually leads us into the most sensible way of doing so. And finally, in the last episode, we'll talk about implications for the future of harm reduction. So make sure that you tune in. One way to make sure that you don't miss any episodes is to subscribe to the podcast, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast app. Or, of course, you can always just visit lifeprocessprogram.com where we have a whole archive of the podcast there. We'll catch you next week.